right, well, welcome to yet another podcast of Fuck You Friday. I'm your host, Wynn Silberman. This is my co-host, Casey LeBlanc, and I'm very excited today, Casey. We have, I, I would consider a super lawyer on with us, and Rich Nichols. Uh, Rich, thank you very much for, for being here. It's going to be a really fun uh, hour, hour or so of an opportunity to visit with you and, and chat. Um, just for a little background, Rich has represented some amazing and elite athletes. Marion Jones, Hope Solo. He's worked with all of USA Women's Soccer, the World Cup champion World uh, Women's Soccer. Um, there's, a, there's a lot that this man has seen. And so I'm really excited to be able to glean, as we say, um, what really makes you elite as not only an attorney, but a human dealing with elite humans. Um, and so that's kind of the context that, that I'd like to start with today. For, for those of you who are not watching on, on video, this is our first virtual guest. So, Rich, welcome uh, virtually. Uh, we, uh, I like we, being first. Yeah, yeah, well, good. You get to keep uh, arm's length from wind, so that's always a plus. <laughs> it's safer that way. So we appreciate you coming on with, uh, with the advances in technology. This is all made possible. So uh, yeah. we're, we're excited yeah. to have you. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, so, thank you for having me. That's an interesting first question, uh, when no one's ever asked me that uh, before about being elite, representing elite athletes and people, uh, I, I've been I've been blessed as as uh, as a lawyer in the sports business, going on for like thirty five years now, um, and I've had the opportunity to represent, I say, four of the greatest athletes of all time in their sport, uh, beginning with uh, you know my Marion Jones and uh, Hope Solo. Uh, Edwin Moses and uh, wide receiver James Lofton, who um, uh, I still think James is the best receiver ever, notwithstanding Jerry Rice and all those that came after him, uh, to do what he did, uh, playing nine years on the Green Bay Packers with nine different quarterbacks and averaging more than a thousand yards a year, and and uh, he had the the uh, most yards receiving record until Jerry came along to break it. But of course, Jerry got to play eight more years than James did, and the whole nine yards. So. As far as I'm concerned, James Lawson is the greatest team of all time. And it, it's interesting having been able to represent four more than elite athletes, and they are a different breed. And how did I get to represent them? I think the key is uh, uh, transparency and trust. Transparency and trust. Uh, I required of them that they be transparent and trust me, and they required the same thing of me. And uh, once you can establish that, with, with uh, not only athletes who are elite, but people who operate at the highest levels. If you're transparent and they trust you, you've got, you've got a client and a friend forever. And trust means uh, it goes both ways, and you have to be honest with, uh, with them at all times. I mean, you can't be a lawyer representing these types of individuals uh, and be in awe of them. And as a matter of fact, this is one of the first things I always tell an elite athlete before I sign on to represent them. And it's my decision to represent them, not their decision to choose me. I'm like, hey, look, I'm not in awe of you. Uh, I was an elite athlete myself. I was on the U.S. track team a couple of times. So I've, I've lived and operated in those circles. And, you know, you put your pants on the same way I do. And I really don't care about who you are. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to give you advice. But I'm not going to make the decisions for you. Um, you're going to make the decisions and you're going to, you know, you, 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 you mentioned make. something. Operate that. Be me. Yeah, you you mentioned something. I want to I want to key on uh, really interestingly because I was an athlete. Casey was almost an athlete back in the day, um, but 
you know, you mentioned that you do have a sports background, right? And and if we just take a step back and think about your career through law school or your through your career through school, which is there anything that you could you could glean that you think sports helped you with that's outside the the field, outside the uh, into the classroom, or or got you to the level that you are as as an attorney? Can you can you grab anything that you learned in sports and apply it to your professional life? Oh, absolutely, discipline. You know, discipline and commitment to the objective, bottom line. It sounds easy, uh, but most people have a real hard time being disciplined. And a lot of people don't even know what their objective is in life or in their profession. Um, so how, how are you going to be successful if you don't know what your objective is and if you don't, have, you don't have the discipline required to get there, you know? And really the key, I mean, track and field, when you run track, it's, you're an individual athlete, any individual sport athlete, in my view, is probably the most focused, most disciplined athlete in sport um, because you don't have anybody to blame it on. You know, it's on you. And if you don't train hard enough, if you don't focus adequately, if you don't execute, like I, I ran the 800 meters, if I didn't execute the 800 meters, I wasn't going to win. I wasn't going to be on the U.S. team. So uh, all of that carries over into your professional life. It carried over for me into um, education and um and, and, and I'm still that way. In fact, my, my, my son says I play in the NFL, the no fun league, because I'm no fun. <laughs> <laughs> so look, let me ask you, with, the, with elite athletes, sometimes the discipline can, uh, it, it can be almost obsessive, right? And so with that, how, how do you see people that can balance the discipline in their, in their careers, but also equate to the happiness and, and some of the overall uh, kind of like life satisfaction, I guess, that, that can evade certain uh, professional athletes and, and how that kind of can spill into their personal lives. How, how do you see that kind of balance? It's, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough for, for, <clears throat> for them. Uh, it's tough for me. And um, I would say that athletes that operate at that level, it's, it's very difficult for them to, um, have and, and keep friends as, as strange as that may sound because you know you've got what a lot of people just want to be close to so who do you trust again right uh they have difficulties sometimes in personal relationships because uh when you are operating at that level everybody's trying to get a piece of you and you're not quite sure whether or not the person you're trying to have a relationship with is really wants to be with you or, or they want to be with what you have or what you represent um so, so it's, it's, it's difficult. And um, a lot of times athletes will get into situations or relationships that don't work out. And once they get into those relationships, they realize that, that they're in a relationship with something or somebody that doesn't share their work ethic, their discipline, their focus, or their, their goals and their objectives, which oftentimes can appear to be very selfish. But at the end of the day, um, if you operate at that level of sport or anything in your profession, it's a lonely existence. You know, it's, it's lonely. The statement is lonely at the top is true. It is. Um, so you have to be very comfortable with who you are. You have to know who you are. You have to be comfortable with that. And you have to sort of like not care what anybody else thinks about your comfortability with who you are in order for you to continue to be operated at a great level. Yeah. Have you ever and, been uh, in a in a meeting with with one of these elite athletes? You don't have to mention names, but but if you want to, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> where where you're listening to a story and and it even overwhelms you. I mean the 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 magnitude or the the craziness of it, where you know they're they're confiding in you and you just almost don't even believe it. 
Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, the laugh, oh, the yeah. laugh tells us a lot. <laughs> yeah. I laugh. Well, it's because sometimes, sometimes, um, when you, when you gain that kind of trust with somebody who performs at that level, um, and they start telling you things that they're not going to tell somebody else with regard to their training or what their fears are or race where they may have almost blown it. It's almost like an out of body experience because you're listening to it and you can't even imagine yourself being in their position with the pressure that they had with the time they spent training for that one moment. You know, Edwin Moses comes to mind. Um, he told me a story one time about he was, you know, Edwin perfected running the 400 meter hurdles. He's the best 400 meter hurdler ever. And way back in the seventies, I met Edwin after he won the Olympic gold medal in Montreal, literally that, literally that day. And two years later we, we became friends and we've been close friends ever since. Um, and he perfected running um, 13 steps between each hurdle. Nobody had ever done that before. And not until recently in the last 10 years has anybody been able to continue to do that and to do it consistently. Um, and he, he told me the story one time about how in the middle of a race or two, he was moving so quickly and with such power, he was coming up on the hurdle in 12 steps and he didn't know what to do. And he would have a, like a, a momentary lapse about, am I going to be able to navigate this hurdle? And I'm thinking to myself, man, what the hell was that like? You know, here's the guy, he's the best ever at it. He's perfected running 13 steps and he's, close to running 12 steps between a hurdle, which means you have to switch legs from a left leg, left leg lead to a right leg. And he's trying to navigate that all in a split second. That's, that's kind of scary. And the results would be disastrous if he didn't figure it out, but he figured it out and, and went on and won. But you know, to hear that kind of thing, that was like an out of body experience for me listening to that because it was a moment of, of uncertainty, you know, in a, in a, in an athlete's mind who had perfected his craft a moment of uncertainty. That's, that's kind of why. That's very and then cool. you have, yeah, yeah, you have times when, you know, they'll confide some of their personal with you. And, and, um, you know, with every great athlete, with every great person, um, they project, um, that they're invulnerable. Right. But in reality, um, they have some pretty deep insecurities that, that they very rarely, um, expose for obvious reasons. Um, and, uh, um, it's, it's probably safe to say that most of the greatest athletes in the world are, are, are kind of like deeply insecure people because, um, they know that they're the best at this one little thing they do, but they're not quite sure about everything else. Uh, when in fact, they don't realize that everything else they do, they do it at the same high level and capacity that they perfect their sporting craft because they don't see it that way because they're just focused on this sport. Tiger was with golf, Edwin with the hurdle, um, hope with goalkeeper, you know, Marion with running the hundred meters. Um, so it, it's a certain vulnerability that they'll never expose unless, unless they're close to you. And it's, it's, it's kind of touching to see it because it tells you that they're just human like everybody else, which is what they always try to say. I'm just human like everybody else, but you're looking at them, you're thinking, Man, you don't look human to me. Right, yeah. and you're running, yeah. running 47 seconds over 400 meter hurdles, and so it's yeah. Working with with elite athletes or people at the top of their 
craft and their profession. It's a, it's a very special uh, opportunity that most don't get. And so I'm, so I'm kind of blessed to have had that, that opportunity with the four people who I consider to be one, all of them are my close friends and two, uh, some of the best athletes ever walked the face of the earth. Let, let, let's dig in a little bit to to Marion Jones um, and, and and how that how this happened. Uh, Marion, obviously, I believe she won. It was three gold medals, and then obviously uh, loses the gold medals because of performance han- enhancing uh, dilemma or, or concept. How how did you become her attorney? Um, and and walk me through a little bit of, of what happened and 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 some of the things that you, you're allowed to share, if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Marion, you know, I've been with Marion now for, since 1999, so 22 years. And, uh, you know, she's like my daughter at this point. And uh, um, how to become her lawyer, well, I knew, I, I've, I've known her agent um, since for 50 years. You know, he ran track at Arizona State, so I knew him, Charlie Wells. And, uh, and I hadn't seen Charlie in a long time, and he showed up at a sports lawyers conference uh, to do his NFL Players Association certification thing. And I was on a panel. This was back in 1998, I believe. And he came up to me after and, and hey, good to see you, Rich. You know, I'm, I'm representing Marion Jones. And uh, I knew who she was in 1998. And he said, you know, I might have to call you. I might need a lawyer. Said, okay, fine. So about a year later, he called me. If you re- recall, Marion had announced in 1999 that her goal was to win five gold medals at the uh, Sydney Olympic Games in 2000. And the, the testing ground for that goal was the World Track Championships in 1999. And, and she, ran, she ran five events, competed in five events in 1999. Um, but as she, as she pursued this goal, um, she was in hot demand by you know, sponsors and endorsers. So Charlie called me. At the time, I was at Wilson Sonsini, Rich and Rosati, doing technology transactions in Silicon Valley. And he called me and said, Rich, I need, I need a lawyer who can do Marion's deals going into the 2000 Olympic Games. I need somebody we trust, somebody who understands sports. And I did. Um, I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. I can do sports deals in, in my sleep at that point. So that's how we got started. I negotiated all of her endorsement deals uh, going into the 2000 Olympic Games. I'd never, I hadn't met her, never talked to her. The process was Charlie would start the negotiation with the, with the company to do the endorsement deal and he turn it over to legal and I would close it out and get it done. And, and uh, she went to Sydney, won the five medals, three, three gold, two bronze. And in December of that year, she called me out of the blue and said, uh, hey, Rich, I've I, I never met. I just want to thank you for everything you've done for me. And I'm going to get, be getting an ESPY award in February of 2001. And I want to invite you to the ESPYs. So she flew me in. So it was in Vegas at the time. Flew me in, and that's how we met. And I'll never forget, we met in the, in the hallway in the Bellagio. And at the time, she was married to C.J. Hunter. And um, and she came out. She was very effervescent and introduced herself. And when I told her right then, I said, look, uh, I'm not in awe of you or anybody like you. You have a speech. <laughs> and I'm very, yeah. 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 I'm, very, I'm very direct. I will let you know exactly what I think. I'll give you advice. I'll give you the pros and the cons, but you have to make the decisions. I'm not going to make the decisions. She said, Rich, that's how I operate. We're gonna, it's going to work out. And that's, yeah, that's, that's how it's been for, well, that was in 2001, so for 20 years uh, in terms of representing her. And, and uh, she's very smart, and, uh, and Hope Solo's very smart, too. Uh, two smart, very strong women. Marion Jones is the strongest, 
She's the strongest person I know, period. Mentally, mentally strongest person I know. Uh, extremely smart uh, and challenging. You know, it, you're not going to roll up on Marion Jones and and sling some bullshit yeah. and expect to expect to get away with it. It's yeah. not going to happen. You know, you know, so. it's in, it's interesting. Uh, we we've interviewed Michaela Mayer, who who's who's a uh, boxing champion right now, a female boxing champion, and and the role of women in sports. Um, thankfully, I've seen over the last ten years. I, I think I feel like there's been growth. Uh, and just recognition of excellence in that context, um, and and you mentioned Hope Solo, who obviously is is a is a an elite was an elite soccer a female soccer player. What is it that drew you to to women's sports? And if you don't mind, I believe uh, just share your affiliation with with USA Women's Soccer in general. What what's inspired you uh, to to work with with women in sport? Uh, obviously you have background, but what's, what's really been the pivotal issue for inspiring you to work with women in sports? Yeah. You know, my mother, I, I, my mom, my mom was a very strong, passive, passively aggressive, strong woman who, um, went through a lot of garbage with my dad, to be honest, um, in, in her life. And I watched it and I watched her, um, I watched her maintain her dignity under a lot of stress a lot of which was precipitated by my dad. They were married 52 years, stayed married. Uh, it's funny on the 50th anniversary, my mom called me and said, Oh, it's our 50th anniversary. I've been with your dad, married your dad for 50 years. <laughs> through thick and thin, mostly thick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But my mom was strong. She was strong and, and people underestimated her, but she was tough. And, uh, and, and kind of got, you know, as, as a woman, black, as a woman, um, of color. Um, uh, my mom was Native American. My dad was black. Uh, just took a lot of crap, but worked in a factory for 40 years under really extreme conditions and never really got the respect that she should have gotten. And I always stayed in my brain. So as an athlete, early on during the whole Title Seven stuff back in the early 70s, uh, it was clear that women's sports was not getting what it should get. So for some reason, I was just always committed to making sure that women got the opportunities that, that men got. So I had a sports marketing firm for almost 10 years. And one of the things we did back in 1984, we created a women's sports festival in San Francisco. And uh, the idea was to highlight women in sports. And Panasonic and AT&T were our sponsors. And it, we did it for a couple of years and it went pretty well. Uh, but I ended up selling my company. I also owned the city of San Francisco Marathon for several years. We ended up selling it to IMG and they did what they always do. Companies ruined it. But anyway, um, so so my start with women in sports was the Women's Sports Festival in 1984. Um, in 1995, I got a call from a buddy of mine, Gary Cavalli, who was one of the founders of the American Basketball League, which was the premier women's basketball league, um, precursor to the WNBA. Uh, truth be told, we were a better product. We paid the women $100,000 a year. We had a Silicon Valley uh, ownership model of the league where the players owned the league. Uh, and uh, David Stern um, basically told us he was going to put us out of business in three years, and he did. <laughs> um, but, and, that, and that's another story. Sure. Um, um, so that, that was a commitment to women's sports. And uh, so I was just always drawn to it um, because there was just a bunch of inequity there, and there still is. So, yeah. So, so- Rich, let's kind of circle back around. I'm, I'm curious. You, you, you were representing 
uh, elite athletes during the steroid era, right? Can you talk a little bit about what 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 was going on in sports in the in the early two thousands and you know with the there was a Balco case there was you know and you're out of the Bay Area, correct? Yeah, that's right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, can you talk a, talk talk a little bit about what performance enhancing drugs it has been over the last twenty years and how it's evolved and what some of the, your experience has been with with all the different things that have gone on with it? Yeah, well, performance enhancing drugs, the whole era of performance enhancing drugs, in my view, um, um, occurred out of uh, circumstance. Um, it wasn't something that the authorities were focused on. It was it was the outgrowth of of a uh, of, uh, very aggressive IRS agent who was investigating Victor Conte for tax issues who, who literally did dumpster diving outside of the Belco labs and he stumbled across 27 manila folders with athletes' names on them and, and he put two and two together and, and uh, decided that there'd be an investigation of Belco and the uh, production and distribution of performance enhancing drugs for these 27 athletes uh, one of whom was Marion Jones, um, the allegations were. And don't forget where I was. It was in September, September 5th of, uh, of 2003. Uh, I was in my office, and uh, CNN used to have these news alerts, and up on my screen popped this news alert that said that the, that the feds had raided the Balco Labs in Burlingame, California. I didn't know what Balco was at the time, um, but that they had found... Um, uh, 27 Manila folders with athletes' names on them, uh, including Barry Barnes, Jason Giambi, and Marion Jones. So I'm like, wow, really? So that kind of started the whole Balco saga for for me and and certain Marion. And um, and it was uh, it was uh, it was it was tough, and, and that's a, that's an understatement. So what made it tough? Well, what made it tough was um, we didn't have any information. We really you know, the government basically told us that um, they weren't after athletes. They were after um, the um, manufacturers and distributors, um, which was fine. But, you know, once, once you're called to go to the grand jury, you know, you're, under, you're under scrutiny. So, uh, so what I did right away was uh, contacted Marion, let her know, hey, look, we're gonna, we're gonna, you're going to be getting the grand jury subpoena, and we're going to have to get you prepared. I reached out and, and uh, retained uh, one of the best white-collar criminal lawyers still, Joseph Burton, who used to be the chief assistant U.S. attorney in the Northern District of California, which is where the Balco case was was brought. And um, and we uh, we commenced to um, putting Marion through the, the paces to prepare for the grand jury opinion. So this is in 2003, November of 2003. And when you're preparing somebody for the grand jury, it's, it's, it's really difficult. Uh, and even more difficult when the government doesn't really tell you what they're looking for. And they basically didn't tell us what they were looking for other than it was a tax investigation of Balco and Victor Country. But be that as it may, she was still going to have to go before the grand jury and we were still going to have to prepare her. So we did as best we could. And about a week before the uh, grand jury appearance, um, Joe and I made a strategic decision that, hey, you know what, we, we're really not totally comfortable with how we prepared Marion because of the lack of information that we got from the government. So we decided to uh, strategically raise our hands and, and basically ask 
the government for what's called a pre-grand jury interview. We're, we're willing to bring Mary in for a pre-grand jury interview. And uh, what you do is you, you negotiate what's called a queen for a day use immunity agreement, meaning you can come in uh, and whatever you tell us, we can't use anything you tell us to prosecute you, but you have to tell us the truth. And if you lie, we can prosecute you for lying to federal investigators. It's called a 1001 violation. So we negotiated that deal. We went in and um, 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 it was a three hour session. And uh, Jeff Nowitzki, the lead investigator, um, for the, he, was, he was an IRS agent. And Jeff Nedro was the assistant U.S. attorney. They were across the table from us. And uh, I'm on Marion's uh, left, Joe's on her right. And they spent two hours, two and a half hours showing her documents, asking if she recognized this, do you recognize that? You know, they had, they had purported calendars with steroid dosages on them and all that kind of thing. And about two and a half hours in, uh, Jeff Nowitzki pulls out a, a large glad sandwich bag, clear, and inside of it were two smaller sandwich bags. One had a, uh, a small vial of olive oil colored liquid in it, and um, the other was a small, maybe a five-inch um, unlabeled white tube that looked like a toothpaste-type tube. And he stood up, and Jeff Nowitzki, six-feet-six, balding guy, former basketball player, and he reaches across the table and he flashes this the small sandwich bag with the liquid in it in front of Marion's face and he says, do you recognize this? And she said, no, I don't. I don't recognize And he, he was pretty like, pissed off with that answer. If he didn't believe her. And he waved it in front of her face again and asked the same question. She says, no, sir, I don't recognize it. And then he started getting a little belligerent, so I called a timeout. Let's go in the hallway and talk about this. So he went into the hallway. The AUSA went in the hallway. Joe Burton, he went out. He went into the hallway. I was the last to go out. And I looked back at Marion, and she had like a vacant look on her face. And 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 the pre-story to this, this, this was in November of 03. Well, in June of 03, uh, Marion's former coach had anonymously sent in a syringe with some liquid in it to the anti-doping agency, U.S. anti-doping agency. They sent it to the USA um um, uh, lab that decompiled steroids and by August of 03 they decompiled this liquid and it turned out that it was an old steroid the acronym for which was THG so they called it the clear because it, if you took it it didn't show up in your urine didn't show up in your blood you were clear so so we go on to the hallway maybe 30 seconds and and during that 30 seconds you know, Marion had realized that she recognized the liquid as something that maybe her coach had given her. And, and she put two and two together and thought, maybe that's the clear. So I'm just going to say, no, I don't know what that is. And, Cause I'm, I'm panicking here. So basically we walked back in and instead of her pulling us aside, Joe and I aside and said, Hey, look, you know, I, I think I, I know what that is. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to answer this. We could have advised her how to answer. Truthfully. Um, and everything would have been fine. But instead, she didn't do that. She decided in 30 seconds to to, to say she didn't recognize it. And, and that was the end of the interview. So ultimately, that was the that was the lie that, that uh, the line of federal investigators that ultimately sent her to uh, the federal prison for six months, you know. And but that was, was on that was, one day. That was on the, one you called it a, a one, one one thousand or... Oh. 
it, it's, it's U.S. Code 18, 1001, Section 1001, lying to federal investigators, yeah. And you get yeah, one day, you get one day, and this, is this common, is, or is this very rare from a, from a procedural standpoint? standpoint? Yeah. yeah. It's called Queen Four Day. You're a Queen Four Day. No, it's pretty common. I mean, you community deal. Okay. For that one, you can, you have to answer their questions truthfully. They can't use what you tell them to prosecute you. Uh, but if you lie, they can prosecute you for lying to so if, if she answers the question, yes, I do know what it is, and that and ends it there. She she does zero time. Right, she told the truth exactly. <clears throat> Got it. Yep. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Wow. If if she had answered the question truthfully at the time, they weren't after athletes. You know, they were after the big fish. Um, yeah, and more than likely, um, her answers to those questions would have never been known. To the public, it would have been private and sealed. Wow! Wow! What a what a fascinating story. Now, now you had mentioned two other professional athletes, and those those athletes got a lot of publicity at the time as well. I think you mentioned Jason Giambi, obviously Barry Bonds, and in, in the clear is a is a very famous Bay Area story. It's probably a national big national story. Yeah. Are is there any coordination amongst legal or to try to bury this? Like let's get let's get these athletes away from this story as quickly as possible, and 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 try to you know move on and get the media to pick up a different a different story because it was it was how, how long was it in the news for and was there any coordination with any of the athletes or are you guys just basically like hey we just protect our 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 the person that we're representing yeah, we just protected the person we're representing it but at the time in 2004 this was it was the biggest sports scandal ever it was everywhere and this is this is why I tell you Marion Jones is the strongest person I know um, going into the 2004 Olympic Games, Marion is it. She's every she's on every cover of every magazine all around the world, and she's got this investigation hanging over her head. Uh, um, it was the pressure was unbelievable. It was unbelievable on me too. Uh, trust me. Um, um, but no, we we didn't we didn't work with any other athletes. And to be honest with you. Um, you know, the government tends to go after people who have the least amount of resources, right? So, meaning money to hire the best to defend them. And uh, at the time, when you look at Barry Bonds and Jason Giambi and Marion Jones on that list, who has who has the most financial resources? Yeah, it's the top two that I just named. So, if, if, if yeah, so the person with the least amount of resources and the highest profile yeah. is the one that's going to... Look, and at the time, I was married. I'm I'm fascinated by her response in such a trying time, and and so I'm curious as you were able to kind of witness it right next to her, and even be part of this the the story and 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 how it all evolved. What are some of the things that we can all learn from, like how she's able to deal with that? How do how do elite people deal with with this cloud or this? I mean. It, for any other, for us common people, this could bury your life, right? And we all, in in some degree, go through these ups and downs. And I think one of the things is elite people are able to either rebound or make the make the downs not as deep as some of us, you know, mere mortals. And so, can you can you talk a little bit about what you witnessed and how she handled it, and what are some of the things that we can all learn from in that you know in that particular experience? Well, I think I think. Um one, you have to be a very strong person, um, internally strong person. 
two, you have to have only the people around you that you absolutely trust. And, uh, and at the time with her, it, it, it was me, you know, and she told me that. Um, um, and you have to be able to make some pretty, listen to some hard conversations from your lawyer and take the advice and make some pretty tough decisions, you know? Um, and the person has to, I mean, it's a lonely, it's a lonely experience. It's on you. I mean, as the athlete is going to make, the person is going to make those decisions. You have to make the decision because it's you, uh, that's going to deal with the consequences of those decisions. And, uh, I can tell you, I mean, we had some pretty hard, uh, emotional, um, conversations. And, um, you know, one of the things Marion always told me, uh, she said, Rich, uh, I'll tell you a story. This was in 2004. She said, Rich, I'm going to tell you, um, all this stuff, it, it's kind of affecting my training, but I'm going to get out there and I'm going to do the best I can do. This is before the Olympic trial. She said, but I'm telling you that I will never get on the track if I can't perform at 100% capacity, ever. I said, okay. So, uh, now that's, that's somebody who knows themselves and is strong-willed. And at that time, Marion, NBC, NBC planned the entire Olympic track and field trials around Marion Jones's 100 meters and 200 meter performances, the entire program. How do I know that? They told me. So if you recall, she didn't make the team in the 100 meters. She came in fifth. Um, and then the next day, the 200 meters began. And uh, never forget, I was, <laughs> I was, uh, it was a Friday night. The 200 meters, the heats were on Saturday. NBC had, it was live. It started at 2 p.m. Eastern. The trials are in Sacramento. Um, and uh, I'm, I was at the old spaghetti factory restaurant in, in Sacramento eating by myself at about 5.30 on Friday night and she called me and she says, Rich, you got to come to my hotel. I said, when? She said, right now. Huh. Okay. So I went, knocked on the door. She opened the door. It was dark in the room. And, and she said, uh, remember when I told you that if I couldn't get on the track and perform at a hundred percent capacity, I wasn't going. I said, yeah. She said, I'm not going to the 200 meters tomorrow because wow. I am not, mentally ready. I'm not at a hundred. I can't do it. Huh. I said, okay, I'll, I'll let the people that need to know, know. She said, but wait, um, let me call you at nine tomorrow morning, just in case I change. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, well, I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I want to, I want to see how I feel when I wake up tomorrow. I might be there at a hundred percent, but if I'm not, I'm not doing it. Okay. So nine o'clock shot. She called me and said, Rich, I'm not there. I'm never, I'm never putting you or anybody else in a position where you have to defend a lackluster performance from me when I know I'm stepping on the track and I'm not going to bring it. So I'm out. Okay. Wow. So that's, that's who she is. Right. She it, felt she owed us the obligation of 100% performance. It's fascinating. Because, because, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Well, here, here's what's fascinating to me, Casey, and, and you know, I attribute 
you're strong. You're a strong human. You're a strong individual. For me, at that moment, Rich, there's a there's an interesting. If you just kind of look back on it, that's a pivotal definition of strength because there's some people that say, no, that's bullshit. She chickened out. On the other hand, I certainly would recognize it. The, the she knows the amount of people and the eyes on her. So the the amount of strength uh, that you'd have to carry to know to not step on that uh, track is is incredibly incredibly strong. But it, there, it, I don't know how to express it other than that it's fascinating. Would you see that well, as weakness or strength? No, Casey? I mean there's an awareness that's obviously a strength. But in that moment to be able to walk away or to step away, what what we're being that close to the to the moment. What what do you what do you what do you glean? What do you take away from it? What what was your what was your thought, whether it be at the time or even now, looking back on it? Um, I, I remember how I felt when she told me. I was I actually I was actually relieved huh. that that she had made the decision because I you know, I knew her well enough to know that mentally she probably wasn't there. You know, in terms of being able to focus on that stuff. I mean, there was so much going on yeah. to have competed at all at the trial. Um, and do was, you think it was a hundred percent mental? I mean, that was the reason she was st- stepping away. Was she physically in, in a, in a, in a was, spot where she should yeah. be able to, to, to be the best. Yeah. She was still the best physically. Yeah. I yeah. mean, she jumped 20 the night before she had jumped the longest long jump in the world the night before. That's so, pretty good. I, I, that's pretty good. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But for the 200 meters, she just wasn't there mentally. Physically she was ready. Well, there's an example with Simone and the Olympics this year. I mean, it's this uh, this new this new dialogue, this new narrative, and there's a pivotal example of the distinction between physically ready and, and mentally unable. It's a great analogy. Yeah, you know, yeah it's that's, fascinating. It's fascinating yeah, that yeah, this has become something that people are finally recognizing. But look at the evolution of what it's but taken. Back to then, back then oh, wasn't no way, right. Yeah, no way. And, and now, so the psychology of of sports and the in the mental role that it plays. Right, you, there's a lot of gifted athletic ability uh, folks out there, but the mental component of it plays a much bigger role than I think a lot of, you know, us oh. common folk understand, right? The, the, the mental can play. So maybe you t- maybe touch on that as you've seen these elite athletes. Let's talk about your, your perspective on what that mental component is in, in competition, in athletics. Oh, it, it's, it's, it's huge. And when you've had the privilege of being around a Marion Jones, and Edwin Moses, a Hope Solo, um, um, as they prepare to compete on the day of competition, you know, um, there's a there's an aura around them that's indescribable, you know. Um, like Marion, for instance, um, there were four or five of us that traveled the world with her, and we knew the routine on race day. She wanted to be at the track two hours before her race. Um, we, we all better be in the lobby um, 15 minutes before we're all to get in the cars and go to the track. We all know what our roles are on that day. We better be ready to perform and execute um, because it's all, a part of, it, it's all a part of her being able to be mentally prepared to not have to worry about a bunch of other stuff, um, knowing that we're taking care of the other stuff. You know, So if we weren't at our appointed stations at the appointed times, then that would throw her. So we we never we were always where we were supposed to be when we were supposed to be there. And she would funny, we'd be in the lobby waiting for her. She'd come down, you know, her pre race outfit was she wore a white Nike t shirt, a white hat, 
and and um, a blue um, tights. She wouldn't say a word to us. She'd get out of the elevator. She'd walk through the lobby. We better be where we're supposed to be. She would just look at us and nod and go out, get in the car. And for the next two hours, it's all about her focus on that race, period. And the, the I can't imagine what the pressure must feel like, especially for her at the time. She was, the, she, was, she was an icon in the world, not just in track and field, but everything else. So you know, to walk into a, Zurich. I remember Zurich. Zurich is one of the biggest track meets in Europe. You know, ninety-five thousand people in the stadium. I mean, to 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 know that you're going into that cauldron, and to know that you've got seven competitors who want to do nothing but beat you in front of these ninety-five thousand people, and to be able to focus on that one hundred meters of real estate that you have to navigate first. Wow. You know, it's, it's, that's, that's mental focus and strength, period. Yeah. And anybody that can do that is going to be successful in anything that they choose to do. And when you're around somebody, like, like I said, you can feel it. You can feel the pressure and the stress. And, and, it, and it, almost, it almost affects the way you um, exist over the couple of hours before they compete. It's, it's, I've never really talked about it, but it's... Yeah. It's it's uh, it's different, you know, than, than anything that it's almost indescribable. But those who've been around athletes like that before competition, they know what I'm talking. about. It's fascinating. You know? There's ritual, there's routine, and there's everything else that, that you speak Absolutely. about in, 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 in any sport, in any, whether it's individual or whether it's team. Um, and uh, I want to touch base on kind of a third tranche and third theme because uh, Rich, thank you. This has been awesome. It's it's been wonderful to, to speak about all this stuff. Uh, you, you, uh, initially, in the beginning of our, our conversation here, you mentioned that elite athletes, there, there's so many things that are coming at them, right? And it, it's, so, it's, it's lonely at the top. Uh, but, but one of the things that I think that we've talked about is, is the importance of, of being present and being aware in the moment. Look, NFL stands for not for long in terms of I, the no fun league or not for long is, is my two themes for it. Um, and, and I know that obviously you have a tremendous amount of experience in the context of labor law and collective bargaining and, and all that. I, I would want you to, if you don't mind, just touch a little bit on, you know, recently the NFL, uh, the NFL players association were able to come together again and, and have a, have an agreement, uh, and, and, uh, agree to mutually move forward on some things. And there's been a lot of talk about, um, certain of the active athletes not just paying attention enough uh, to really what's going on because it does affect not only their their lives but but everyone who's participated in that league. Um, would you care just to comment on what your perspective is on that in terms of how how that process came to be about? So, so I um, I had the privilege of of, uh, of being the executive director and general counsel for the World Cup champion U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. Starting in uh, 2015, I was kind of the catalyst for this whole equal pay movement, and and it took the team two years to hire me. And meaning they 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 met with me three or four times. They wanted to get a real feel for my commitment to them, and I wanted to get a feel for their commitment to me. Um, because and I told them in each presentation, I said, "Look, um, professional sports. You this is your business. You're a professional athlete, and you have to look at it that way." And your business shelf life is very limited. 
you know, uh, NFL football players, three and a half, four years tops. Uh, women's soccer players, maybe 10, 10 years, maybe more. Um, but you have a limited time to leverage your profession, your business into economics, into opportunities, into money. And I told them at the beginning, I said, Look, you guys, you should be paid with the men getting paid. Um, because you're better. You're bringing more revenue to U.S. soccer. And you deserve it. You should, I mean, just on, on an equal basis, you should be getting paid. You're doing the same job under the same conditions, same time of the year, getting paid 75% less. That's crazy. So this is your business. You have to optimize your business opportunity while you physically can. Because professional athletes, they're a commodity with a limited shelf life and depreciation that happens with every passing minute. Football players. You know, most NFL contracts are not guaranteed. So what do they what do they count on? They count on their players association, their union, to protect one, the money they do earn, and two, their prospects for continuing to be able to earn that money. In my view, um, the the NFL players have been underserved by their union. Why do I say underserved? And I'll say underserved for the past 10 years. Gene Upshaw, who was the first executive director of the NFL Players Association, he did a great job. He ended up, when, when Gene died, I think the NFL players were getting well in excess of 55% of the gross revenues of the NFL. Today, they're getting 47% of the gross revenues of the NFL. And they're playing almost five more games a year now than they were playing when Gene died in 2008, 2009. So they're playing more, taking more risk, getting paid less money. Why is that in my view? Because you know, professional athletes, um, they don't necessarily see themselves as business, as, 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 a, as an asset. The owners see them as assets, sure. depreciating but the players don't see themselves as assets. They're just, a lot of them are just happy to be here. Well, no, you're an asset. This is your business. You have a very short period of time in your life to, to maximize your business, to make millions of dollars. Don't squander it away by not paying attention to the framework of your business. And the framework of your business is your union, and the framework of your business with the union is that you're a member, and you need to pay attention to the collective bargaining negotiation and not bitch and moan later when it's over with and you feel like you got screwed. You, you had an opportunity to be involved, get involved, learn. Uh, get a lawyer who understands the stuff to educate you about the collective bargaining agreement. The CBA is 456 pages long. 456 pages of intricacy, you know? And if you don't take the time to study it, if you don't take the time or get somebody who's going to study it and educate you about it, you're going to leave on the table, what the current CBA for the NFL Players Association is, what the current players in the NFL are leaving on the table in this new deal they signed for 10 years is about $3 billion over 10 years. Three bi- Where do you get that? With a B? $3 billion. With a B. Where do you get that from? Well, okay. there's, a, there's, a, there's a section in the CBA called um, um, uh, AR. Um, um, Alternative Revenue? Or- actually. After, yeah. And and when you read through that section, there's another section called uh, excluded revenues, meaning 
the following revenues are excluded from the gross from which whatever percentage you players are going to get is derived. And when you look through the excluded revenue list, there are things like uh, um, revenues accruing to the NFL from from the real estate development of stadiums or any facility that the players play in or take advantage of. Um, that, that's excluded revenue. Well, let's see. How, how, from a valuation point of view, what's the accrued value over a 10-year period of time of, of the new stadium built in Las Vegas? A lot wow. Why can't, we get, yeah. Why can't we get a piece of that? Because it's, it's, it's excluded revenue in the CBA. There's also some revenues that are associated with television and ad, advertising that accrues to the NFL, but it's excluded from the gross tabulation from which the player's percentage comes. So it's stuff like that. When you look through that and you read down, read through that list, you're thinking, how the hell did they leave this on the table? How come this wasn't negotiated? You know why? Because no one was paying attention. Well, that, that, there's a, there's a famous saying, right? You get what you negotiate, right? <laughs> like that's a, that's a, and, and it's, and it's true. And you know, it's funny, you, you bring up this, this idea and I had never really thought of it. And I, I would imagine the owners probably do look at it. Most, I'm a small business employer, and we look at as employees as appreciating assets, right? They, they get better with our systems. They learn more. However, there's not a physical component, right? Athletes in their prime have this depreciating component because they're the, as you get older, you, you depreciate your, your skill set, your yeah. body, your body, you know, gives up, gives away over time. And it's an interesting concept. So you actually have to maximize your, you know, your, your money-making, you know, time, but there is also a component of athletes that, that are, are looking at their brand. And then and you're seeing more and more use social media as a platform to actually expand. And like Kevin Durant, he's making more money outside of basketball than he is on basketball. You're seeing some of these star athletes start to say, okay, like we're, we're also going to – there's going to be some alternative revenues on our end that we're going to be able to capitalize on our name and likeness and, and some of the opportunities, yeah. right? So are, what are, are you seeing that become more and more uh, prevalent in today's – well, well, I think, well, two things. One, 99% of those athletes aren't stars and they're not going to be able to leverage their name and likeness and image for money. Like this whole NIL thing in college sports, I think that's illusory to say the least. But anyway, and maybe detrimental. Um, why, why is that though? Uh, that's that's an interesting point. Why would well, it be because, detrimental? Well, because I think, let's say you're uh, um, a top quarterback in college. I can't think of one this year. Um, and you're going to be a first-round draft choice, and and uh, during your college years, you sign a, a sponsorship deal with with your local Coca-Cola uh, bottling company, right? You get a million dollars, maybe over four years in college. Okay, great. Well, now you're a first-round draft choice. You're getting huge exposure on television, but because you have um, basically eliminated yourself from the soft drink beverage category by having signed with Coke during college with a Coca-Cola bottling company, mm. you are now associated with Coca-Cola. And if Coca-Cola doesn't want to sign you to a beverage deal, you're not getting one. Interesting. Anybody thinking about that? No, you've excluded yourself from a huge payday when you're a pro for what is relatively chump change in college. That's why I think so NIL thing is a loser. And then, and then a lesser athlete 
you're a lesser athlete. Who's gonna who, who's gonna sign you up? For what? What kind of what kind of exposure are you gonna get? Yeah. Well so that, 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 join that, them. That, that that's that's true, Rich. I want to I want to thank you for coming on. This is we, we could sit here for another yeah, hour and, yeah. and ask more and more questions. But I want to I want to leave with a, uh, maybe some takeaways from from you and and maybe just broader taking taking a step back and giving us uh, with all of your experience, uh, whether it be personal and or just your your exposure to to a lot of cool, really interesting things and a lot of really cool, interesting people that have done some really cool shit. Can you tell us for the for everybody listening or watching some of the main key points? You mentioned discipline, but how how does uh, you know these these traits? How can you apply those in your day to day? And what are some of the things either you did personally or you've witnessed that we can all kind of learn from? And, and give us just a you know a summation of 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 your experience and and help us with a takeaway that we can you know apply immediately. Well, I think commitment. You know, you have to be committed. You know, to whatever you decide you're going to do, be committed. Um, number two, um, create options for yourself. You know, um, create options. Um, have something else you can go to, not fall back on, but go to on the same level uh, of of operation and achievement. If what if the other thing you're working on doesn't work out, have options. Uh, three, you know, listen. Surround yourself with people that you respect and listen to them. Not necessarily mentorship, just being observant and listen. Listen to what other people are going through. Listen to advice they're giving you. Because most young people don't listen to anything but themselves. But just listen. Just listen. Um, focus. You got to focus. You do. Every day you have to focus. Um, get up. Have some objectives for the day. Focus on those objectives. Some you will succeed. Some you won't, and just put them on the to-do list for the next day, you know. And and then you know, enjoy yourself, which is what I don't do. My son says, "You don't have any fun, Dad. You don't have any fun." <laughs> well, actually, I do, because I, I really love what I do. So so I don't feel like I'm working. I get up every day. I don't feel like I'm at work. I'm at, I'm I'm having a good time helping people solve their problems. I'm being able to talk to Marion Jones and a whole solo this morning, you know, uh, about life. It's fun. relationship with people. I enjoy what I do. I'm doing this podcast with you guys, talking about what I do. That's fun. I don't feel like I'm at work ever. So those are the things that I would tell people to try to achieve, not only in sports, the business sports, but just in their own lives. Yeah. You know? It's awesome. Very cool. Well, listen, thank you, Rich. Thanks for, for giving us the time to hang out and talk with you. We really appreciate it. This is going to wrap up yet another amazing episode of, of Fuck You Friday. Listeners out there, we're on every platform, by the way, Rich. We're on Spotify. We're on YouTube. We're on everything. So just go ahead, download us, like us, do it all you have to do on the digital world, and that'll be another episode. And uh, thank you very much for coming on. Hey, Rich, that was awesome. Okay. I appreciate it. Yep, learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. All right. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.